Hello, you're listening to Earth Matters, produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the Kulin Nation and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. We're bringing you environmental and social justice stories. I'm Corey Green. Today on the show, we're talking to Bill Hample, who has written a book, Against the Grain, about farmers' efforts to prevent and adapt to climate change. Later on, we'll play one of the interviews that Bill did with sheep farmer Mark McHugh. Welcome. Can you tell us what your book is about? Well, it's called Against the Grain because the 14 farmers I interviewed accept the science of climate change, which, as you know, a lot of farmers don't yet do. And given that I have children and grandchildren, I'm desperately concerned about the impact of climate change. And I thought I'd go to farmers who bear the brunt of climate change and have most to lose by it and identify those who are responding appropriately, that is, they're adapting and mitigating, as an example. So there's a sort of moral element. If these people who have most to lose can do this, often take big risks, then what about the rest of us in across the country in city areas? Uh, I also wanted to show city folk how their food is produced, mm. uh, their food and fibre, and I also wanted to show other farmers the advantages of using science because if you accept the science of climate change, you're likely to accept science in, in other forms, all the various sciences connected with agriculture. And under that heading, show the advantages of land care, for example. These people, most of them, do belong to land care and, in fact, some of them are very active in it. They're leading state groups and so on. And uh, it's been a wonderful organisation for them because, to me, it seems to combine the vital things. It provides conduit to science, an avenue for getting money from government funds, particularly for fences, for planting trees. I'll come back to that later. But hundreds of thousands of trees and also for fellowship because farming can be a very isolating experience and, and, and if you are threatened by variable prices as well as, of course, frosts and, and extreme heat, and two of the farmers lost all their crop in, in a year as a result of those. Another, the fruit grower, one made no, no money at all one year. So those are the sort of challenges and, and, and it takes a pretty sturdy sort of soul to put up with it and, and land care can help you through that. And also, uh, one of the things is their planting of trees counters an argument that a lot of farmers have used that, oh, I can't spare any land to grow trees. You know, I've got to. Well, in fact, it increases your productivity, especially if you're raising livestock. I mean, the last thing you want to do is lose lambs from cold, you know, when they're nearly born. So, if, uh, and the trees do. As you know, they can um, modify the rainfall pattern a little bit. They can stop winds, which do dry out the land. They, therefore, the mo- soil moisture is greater. That it's better growing for pasture and for crops and so on. But also, the, in addition to the aesthetic values of trees, and that's, that's not to be sneezed at. You know, you, uh, when uh, you're plodding away trying to earn a buck, you need to have some nice things to see and and walk around in. And incidentally, some of them have bought blocks of land up 
in one instance, 300 acres of old uh, woodland, hmm. very old, just to leave it there. Hmm. And he, when he, he says, when, when, uh, and to use um, his terminology, when farming's giving me the shits, I just go, for, <laughs> <laughs> go for a wander in there, and and perhaps look at a uh, few birds. And he also has um, an Aboriginal scar tree in that same block of land. So, but all of them who have trees uh, are just delighted at the increase in bird life. So uh, that's a extra bonus. So there's a range of motivations for writing it. That was Bill Hample, author of Against the Grain. Now we're going to hear excerpts from one of the 14 interviews he did for the book. This is sheep farmer Mark McHugh. Mark, could you give a quick description of your property? Yeah, well, we're 20 k's out of our basically north, Mount Cole Creek region. It's mostly undulating or hilly country, so it's not cropping country, although there was a few paddocks we used to crop but uh, basically fairly light grenadine sand soils and a lot of it in fact some of the better country um, is up in the hills where they actually used to grow potatoes uh, the hills native native grasses a lot of them it used to have superphosphate spread over some of them with an aeroplane and used to grow fantastic clover but it's uh, reverted back to native pasture all by itself really well it's the rainfall here well <laughs> when we got here about 45 50 years ago it was considered 24 inches, 22, yeah, 24 right. inches. Okay. We'd be wrapped to get that these days. The average, I reckon, would be about 18 inches. But in 1983, I think there was 9 or 10 inches of rain that year. Uh, 1982 drought, 83 drought. 2006, there was even less than that. And um, this year's not shaping up too well either. No, no. Alan was saying that for the four months, he got one month's rain, roughly. Yes. Yeah, we're in nearly to the end of April, I suppose, don't we? Mm. So um, if it wasn't for a seven-kilometre-wide thunderstorm that went through here about the... I think it was about the 17th of February, mm. which is seven-kilometre-wide thunderstorms, so it wasn't very big. In fact, yeah. two of them, uh, one after the other, very quick, two o'clock in the morning, and that dropped 23 mil here. Right. You know, which is a fluke to get it, you know. So uh, we would have had less than an inch of rain for the first four months, which is phenomenal. Was there any surface water and any creeks on... It came over a bridge. Yeah, that's the Mount Cole Creek. Oh, yeah. yeah. In, well, again, 40 years ago, or 40, 50 years ago, when I was a kid, I'd get home from school and I could, a certain time of the year when these trout were spawning, you could walk down along that creek and count, I could count 30 trout spawning in the, really? in the, on the rocks. Yeah. It was a beautiful creek. It had um, native blackfish, plenty of tiger snakes, uh, water rats, platypus, water birds. It... Now, you drove over before, it is yeah. dry, basically. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of reasons for that. After the 83 drought, I think the water authorities got a bit of a shock and uh, they decided to increase the wall on the Mount Cole Reservoir up there. So they doubled the capacity of the reservoir by in putting more, heightening the wall. In well, lack of foresight, I suppose, but mm. that really was the end of yeah. the creek because mm. it never got to flow out over the wall and uh, flood and... Oh. We had a flood, when was it, 2010? And the creek actually flooded like it did when I was a kid. Yeah. And I thought my kids would never see it, so <laughs> we've yeah. got photos of the kids down there on the flooded creek. But, you know, we're, that was only a couple of years ago, and here we are back in. So, combination of things for the creek, it's uh, also the water authorities were privatised, you know, like mm. we end up with Grim, uh, Grampians, Grim and Mellie Water, and, and they end up selling water out of there 
to uh, the winery and one sort of cattle producer and <laughs> and uh, I've ended up carting water to a paddock this year mm. where the creek was a permanent right you know and I think uh, they've got a really they should put an environmental flow in there yeah. so so how do you get the water for your uh, sheep? I was carting it out of a dam here, and then it was back in the drought. They put in a bore at the local hall, near the survey shed. So there's a big tank there. You can just go down and get water. But it's underground water, you know, which is... It's a bit saline? Oh, no, it's pretty good, actually. Yeah. 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 But there is is good uh, springs in this area, and there's salting ones as well. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any dams on your property? Yeah, I think there's um, 13. (laughs) There's a dam in every paddock. So what have been the main challenges in relation to the loss of rainfall? Or was that... Oh, yeah, the dry weather's the main challenge, yeah. yeah. The changing seasons, mm. I guess. Um, and look, it's been predicted for years, they've said this southeastern part of Australia is probably going to get drier and it's going to get wetter in the north. Although the dry season, of, uh, the wet season, I should say, up north hasn't been that wet this year either. No. And it's dry all over. And I've yeah. heard... Like they're moving cattle out of Queensland and the Territory because mm-hmm. it's so dry up there because of the lack of the wet season. So I don't know. It's uh, it's always a challenge. The climate and the weather, and it's a pretty silly way to make a living, <laughs> really. Gambling with the weather, mm. and it's not going to get any easier. No, I, I pick it up that the farming community as a whole is finding it a bit of a challenge now in most parts of Victoria. Yep, that'll be fair. Probably the northeast hasn't been doing too bad, but the mountains, I think, attract the rainfall up there. Yeah. Even uh, down Hamilton Way, Mark Woolton from Jigsaw Farms, he was saying it's been the driest five months down there, you know, yeah. and that's regarded as safe country down there, you know. According to the DPI information that I read, you ran 2,000 sheep and 77 cattle. They're still running that many? Or? Uh, no. The cattle is, is down to... Seven cows and, yeah. and 12 calves yeah. at this point in time. Yeah. Uh, I just sold five the other day, old cows. Um, and the sheep numbers, no, that'd be under 2,000 at this yeah. point in time. And that's probably for this season, there's still too many. I'm trying to figure out what I can sell next because the season's not shaping up as well as it should be and the fodder supplies are just dwindling. So we don't want to be in a situation like we... A lot of farmers found themselves back in 1983 where they were just shooting sheep and putting them in a pit. Yeah, yeah. God, no, that must be hard. <laughs> yeah, I know, and I'm <laughs> dreading, or even, I've never seen it, but I've heard of um, seasons where farmers have been knocking newborn lambs on the head, you know. Uh, and you go, oh my God, we don't want to get to that situation. No. What sort of pasture do you provide for your animals? You mentioned that some of it's reverted to native pasture. Yeah, look, there's uh, a lot of native pasture, which I just... Don't stock too heavy. And it's up in the hills, so what, really... What sort is it? Microlina, yeah. or weeping grass is the other name. Oh, okay. A lot of wallaby grass and kangaroo grass. But microlina and wallaby grass, I think the sheep would prefer to eat them than yeah. the kangaroo grass. Oh, there's others as well. There's windmill grass and... Yeah. But around here, like, there's also phalaris, like the improved pastures. So we've got clovers and ryegrass and mm. all the... Do you actually sow pasture? No. No, no. no. Oh, well, that's probably not true. I have done in the past, yeah, yeah and I probably will do again. Mm. But loosen uh, as well. I've sowed loosen, mm. and I tend to sow more. That is fabulous weed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the loosen is deep-rooted stuff. Isn't it? Deep-rooted perennials, yeah. Do you have salinity problems? Yes, although they've, the dry years have been good for something. They've sort of 
stopped a salinity oh, problems yeah. to a certain extent. Well, the water table isn't rising up, no. so it's holding the salinity back a bit. So with every negative, there's a positive, I suppose. Do you uh, think it's necessary to monitor the nitrogen and phosphorus content of your soils? Yeah, we do soil tests, and especially oh, yeah. if I'm going to put a crop in. Yeah. So that'll give me some idea of what the crop's going to need. And um, before something loosen, which I hope to this spring, weather permitting, I want to put in another 30 acres of loosen. So the paddock's been sprayed out at a year or so ago mm. to get rid of the hard-to-kill weeds. And uh, it's had lime on it because mm. it's uh, high acidity and high aluminium in this soil. And uh, loosen does not like high aluminium, but the, the lime negates that problem to a certain extent. Is there any, ever any concern about nitrous oxide? I've read that over-application of uh, nitrogen can produce nitrous oxides. Is that yeah. a concern at all? It is, but we don't, I don't use it. And, uh, no, no. I don't apply nitrogen to pasture no, okay. or to crop mm-hmm. in the form of urea, but yeah, you can apply it and then get the wrong weather conditions and lose most of it. And that just goes up in the atmosphere as nitrous oxide, yeah, which is a greenhouse gas. And dairy farmers do it because they need a, um, a boost to their pastures a lot of the time. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so they'll just go and bung on a heap of nitrogen or urea. And, yeah, if they don't do it at the right time, they can waste time, money, and <laughs> add nitrous oxide to the atmosphere. Our fertilisers, the main one's phosphorus, or just superphosphates always comes with X amount of sulphur in it. From years ago, when we did this, first did this greenhouse on-farm uh, greenhouse gas inventory and action plan, it's taken me years, but I'm part of the Project Platypus Sustainable Ag Committee, mm. and we were trying to come up with projects and ideas, mm. and I came up with an, an idea for a paddock guide based on that. So mm. it's just a little fold-out yeah. paddock guide. I've never heard paddock guide to identify weeds, and it's just a guide to uh, make farmers sort of more carbon conscious, as one, mm-hmm. one farmer said to me the other day. He said, I think we've all got to become more carbon conscious, and I was, I was wrapped that the words come out of this bloke's mouth. <laughs> Because <laughs> I didn't expect him to say that sort of thing. But, uh, Mark, you seem to be very open to ideas. I, I've always been a bit of a greenie, and that right. might have come about by reading a lot of Gerald Durrell books when I was at school. Oh, yeah. okay. And I've always been conscious of um, things around me, you know, yeah, nature. Yeah. I mean, I, the way we're heading, it's just got to slow down, I reckon. You're listening to Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories. I'm Corey Green. We're listening to an interview with author Bill Hample and sheep farmer Mark McHugh about Mark's efforts to prevent and adapt to climate change. Just on the question of livestock and methane, is that something on your mind? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And the DPI have been doing a bit of work on that too, uh, trying to figure out if what animals eat produces less methane, but... Mm. Oils and tannins. Yeah, and stuff, yeah, yeah, and grape mark and all those sort of things. But they're only, it's only around the edges. I think the most gains will be made in genetics and selection of animals. Mm. You know, it's uh, very important. Mm. Uh, anyone who breeds sheep or cattle is always selecting. And even in plants like my loosen patch out there, there's areas where it's stopped growing, but there's the odd plant in the middle of these areas that have not got other um, plants in them. And you'd think that's, that's where the high aluminium is, and you'd go, oh, geez, you should be um, selecting those plants and taking the seeds <laughs> and yeah. selecting for high aluminium tolerance yeah. plants. And someone, someone will, be, will be doing it. It's just a matter of research and development. Well, if you're talking about fats, do you actually feed fats to the... And what sort? No. Dietary supplements that are to be animals? No, rarely. Rarely do I 
feed them anything uh, apart from uh, barley uh, or oats or yeah. uh, loosen right. grass hay that's been baled up. But it's all fairly natural stuff. I um, have in the past given them a lick blocks, you know, which is uh, calcium and salts and molasses mm. and that sort of thing. Right. But I haven't done that for years. Although this, this year now, this dry year now, it's probably not a bad year to supplement them with something. Have you had to bring in um, feed supplements from outside the property? That... I, yeah, I haven't bought hay for years, but mm. I've got a semi-load turning up okay. any time as soon as I get a phone call. Mm. In fact, uh, just yeah. because of this season, I thought, yeah. it's, I'm running low, it's getting yeah. a bit risky. So, yeah. Just on the question of carbon and trees, you've been quoted as saying soil carbon is easy to measure but harder to maintain. Have you found it useful to measure your soil carbon? And I have. Well, it, it, it turns up in every soil test you do. Oh, right. Okay. So you don't have to get it done specifically, although you can. But through Project Platypus, we decided to put forward a project of taking a baseline sample of carbon in the local, you know, this Wimmera area. So I was um, getting farmers to bring through their soil tests and tell me what their carbon, soil carbon levels oh. were. And, uh, anyway, that project didn't get up, but I, the general percentage of soil carbon in the area was sort of 1.5 to 2.5 maybe three three is pretty high that's percentage but uh dpi took that up as well and a a woman called fiona robertson has done the soil carbon projects for Mm. pretty much all over victoria i think Mm. and the results of that are just coming out now so Mm. there are various ways of increasing it aren't there I mean, one way is not to overgraze, I suppose. I'll, I'll quote Fiona Robertson, because I was talking to her on the phone a while back when we were putting that paddock guide thing together, and her quote was something like, um, the best way to increase soil carbon is through perennial pastures, permanent perennial pastures, yes. and, and obviously keeping ground cover, which is proving a bit difficult this year, because the sheep are just eating it off. And <laughs> Croppers, well, minimum till is now a recognised way to, to not to diminish your soil carbon anyway yeah. it's hard to probably increase it yeah it's interesting i understand that it was started about 30 years ago and yet brother and i were driving up to hatter lakes a couple of years ago and just about had to stop the car because a farmer was plowing yep plowing and plowing and plowing and the dust was just yeah <laughs> literating the road it still happens actually on the way to Beaufort, uh, blake was telling me the other day that he you just had to stop the car on the western highway because the bloke was working up a paddock and there was just dust. Yeah, look, minimum till. Majority of people go yeah, minimum till yeah, these days. Of the and um, yeah, because another guy from DBI, DBI told me years ago as soon as you start ploughing a paddock, you're losing soil carbon and nitrogen, and it's uh, better ways of doing it. Since 2003, you've undertaken at least 10 hectares of mixed environmental plantings as a a more secure way of holding carbon, I think you said, less affected by drought. Um, you said there was mainly to address soil erosion. Now, I noticed some pretty heavy gulling erosion on the road down further. Has the planting been successful in holding soil erosion? That uh, lot there you're referring to was the top of a hill paddock. Oh, right, OK. Um, where there used to be a sheep camp, you know, they just, they're a bit like chooks, <laughs> scratch around in the dirt yeah. and they get dust in their wool and... And that was just to hold the wind erosion from the top of that hill, yeah. Right. And it is, it has been successful. Although there's a lot of trees suffering in this season, and mm-hmm. some of my trees in that reverge plot from mm-hmm. all those years ago mm-hmm. are actually dying. Not a lot of them, but there's a few that are just probably being planted and they haven't got the... Like, they might be sitting on a rock shelf, which is further down, you know, so they've, 
the soil's dried out between the top and the rocks underneath. Yeah. And even some of the blue gums that the um, plantations here, if you get back at a distance, you can see areas of blue gums that are dying as well. Mm-hmm. So, One person I was talking to has actually got trees from a drier area and mm. planted those in anticipation of decreasing rainfall. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, they promote getting the seed from your area if you're going to do yeah. vegetation, which is makes sense, but um, although it does make sense to me, we, we yeah. probably have to do that, yeah, because mm. it is getting drier. Some farmers have found that with the sort of mixed planting that you've done, they've become more interested in birds. Has that affected you in any way? When we plant, it is with a view for you know, biodiversity and okay. habitat. And, Including yeah. birds. Yeah, they're a part of the system. They yeah. need to be there. Already the car- carbon tax has had an impact in terms of cost of fertiliser, chemicals, fuel. Has that carbon tax been a serious imposition for you? Not at all. For a predominantly livestock producer, and because we're not included in any carbon no. tax, it has bugger all in... You know, although... Enterprises like dairying, which rely on a lot of heating and cooling yeah. and, and horticulture, cool rooms and all that sort of stuff, yeah. that's where the impact is. Yeah. There seems to be a bit of work being done on, on both of those, the heating and the cooling. Yeah, there has been. But yeah. as far as um, croppers, uh, broad acre croppers and livestock producers, I think the impact's minimal. Uh, you said that you don't want to make money out of carbon. Nevertheless, have you sought to make use of the Carbon Farming Initiative? Yeah, look, I've been following that a bit. There's only a few things that have been ratified, as in methane collection from piggeries, and that's an ongoing Mm. learning experience there. Yes, it seems that there's a a thing just came out recently about regeneration being included. As in forestry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it will be. I'm not sure it is already, but um, Mm. hopefully it will be, yeah. But my aim, as I I said in one of these things, is to get carbon neutral would be fantastic. Unless I retire and sell off, you know, some native pasture to, uh, as an offset or something, you know, I can't imagine any other way of making money out of it. No. How does the stuff the government's putting out on the CFI appeal to you? From what I've uh, read, it's it's still a work in progress. No, it's it's a good initiative, yeah. and it's going to suit some people and mm. not suit others, and it's it's a necessary part of the system, I think. Yeah. Are you happy with the way they've defined eligible offsets? I think they've, as I said, there's not that many that you can uh, take up yet, mm. and that that's a good sign because it's the integrity of the whole system which yeah. has got to be maintained. Yeah. And um, both political persuasions have put a lot of faith in soil carbon, and I think they might have put too much in soil yeah, carbon yeah. because you know, look, a year like this, a season like this, we're losing soil carbon, yeah. and the amount of fires that have been around, you know. If people's plantations get burnt out, that's a problem. I think the Carbon Farming Initiative is a work in progress and it's they're doing as much as they can, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Given the constraints that they're up against too, like there's too much politics in it, way yeah. too much oh, politics. Yeah. There's, a, there's a problem here in that uh, it's impossible to look into the future, but you really should try. Yeah. And you know, if you believe the science and, and 95 or 97% of the scientists are telling us we should be worried... And it's not this generation, see, we're not feeling it. It's, you know, we're all going to be fine. Well, yes and no. I mean, that unprecedented period of hot weather recently. Yeah, well, that's true. Um, and even going back years ago, look, I had a crop, which an oat crop, which was looking beautiful. 
and in October, and we had a 43 degree day, which is a record for then. Mm. And it just cooked the top of my oak crop, mm. turned it from green to white. Yeah. And I think I ended up cutting it for hay because it was not, you know, not going to be viable for grain anymore. Yeah. And that could happen, that, yeah. that yeah. sort of extreme heat. Yeah, it's a variability that's one of the problems, isn't it? Because you need a bit of predictability to run your farm, don't you? Yeah, well, there's not much predictability. It's a bit of a guessing game these days. So. <laughs> <laughs> Always probably has been. But it's, uh, climate change is not going to make that any easier, that's for sure. It's, as I think I said... You know, farming is going to, it's always difficult enough, mm. but add climate change and climate variability and climate intensity into the mm. situation as well. It's, yeah. I understand that you already purchased green energy and would be happy on your farm to be a site for wind energy. And, and I also understand that financial returns for hosting a turbine aren't too bad. Are, are there any other barriers or, for you to, say, putting a turbine on or two on your property? No, I... In fact, there's a, the Ararat wind farm encompasses part of this property, so yeah, I'm hoping to have some wind turbines up there soon. Well, well no, we were approached by a company looking for sites for wind farms, and yeah. this is six years ago, it's been in yeah. the pipeline for so long, but they're... Yeah, what's the delay? Oh, they've got to jump through a million hoops, oh, you know, like yeah. vegetation surveys and mm. cultural heritage surveys mm. and landscape mm. surveys and... At least it's then uh, an assured source of income, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it is. Oh, yeah. I'll jump at it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, we're still hoping, you know. There's, yeah. uh... But the interesting fact is the farming population, according to the surveys that I've read, only about half the proportion accept anthropogenic or human-induced climate change as people in the urban areas, and well, certainly less than even in the regional areas. So farmers, they accept climate change. But they don't accept it it's human use. No. No, which is, which I don't understand because it's common sense to me. Yeah. The factors contributing to it, you know, like go back to deforestation, burning of fossil fuels, coal and petrols and oils, you know. It's yeah. stuff that was sequestrated in the ground. Mother Nature is sequestrated in the ground. We're digging up and burning it and adding it yeah. to the atmosphere. And not only that is uh, the... Farming practices, mm. like all the soils that have been turned over and the soil carbon lost out of there, which is there was a show on telly the other day about the Dust Bowl in America. Uh-huh. I couldn't, I couldn't watch it. I mean, that was a good example of how much soil carbon was lost. Mm. And oh, Mallee area now doing a lot of direct drilling to get away from soil erosion. And but there's those factors like it's um, fossil fuels. Farming practices, not only cropping and losing there, but the increase in uh, ruminant animals, methane, yeah. nitrous oxide. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. how can we do all these things, yeah. deforestation, and not expect, a, not expect a greenhouse gas problem? For some people, a knowledge of the speed of climate change can be a bit depressing. Do you think that actually doing something about it the way you are helps you cope emotionally with it? Well, yeah, it does. I mean... <laughs> You've got to have a go, you, you, yeah. you know, you've just got to do something, mm. you know, just for your own peace of mind, you've yeah. got to do something, you know, have a go. And farmers and Australians have a go, so it's put too much politics in the way. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Corey Green. That was Bill Hample talking to Mark McHugh about how climate change has affected his farming practices. This is one of 14 interviews on the topic that Bill Hample has published in his book, 
Against the Grain, which can be purchased in all the usual places. If you want to find out more about Project Platypus, go to www.platypus.org.au. If you'd like to know more about Landcare, go to landcareonline.com.au. If you missed some of today's show, you can download our podcast at 3cr.org.au slash earthmatters. Earthmatters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support and the dedicated people at the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this program out to you. Earth Matters was produced in the studios at 3CR Radio in Fitzroy, Melbourne, on the Kulin Nation. Our contact phone is 03-9419-8377 and our email is earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au.